briefly, I want to read this quote. So this year, or this month in 1956, in September, uh, we sent the first rocket was past, past the thermopause, uh, which is like the atmospheric energy boundary. It's like really important to be able to get into space. Uh, and that was the first time that had ever happened and we entered the exosphere. So this is like very important to humans, like going into space, space travel, blah, blah, blah. That got us to where we are today. So I read this quote. Indeed, I'd even been argued that because humankind had discovered the means to go to the stars only to find no one waiting for them, this was proof that Homo sapiens occupied the, the pinnacle of creation. It's from a book I'm reading right now called Spindrift. So I want to think about that as we're listening to this sermon, as it's the season of creation. How has humanity responded to their role in creation? It does seem as though we have explored the expanse of the universe and not found anybody else to chit-chat with, and we're like, ha-ha, so we're the best. So we can do whatever we want. But that might not be the case. So here we are. I'm here to settle the score for snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I shall be their mouthpiece today. Uh, so I looked up this Gallup poll, and uh, they polled adults and asked, what strikes fear in the heart of most adult Americans? And they got to choose from like so many things, from public speaking, heights, fear of falling, flying, needles, crowds, doctors in the dark. And I was a little disappointed because 51% of people said snakes were their number one fear. I know, I was like, I don't know. I know a lot of people who don't like needles. I know a lot of people who don't like crowds, so. It looks like half the United States shares a fear with Indiana Jones and all those people on that one plane. And in the breakdown between women and men, 62% of women are scared of snakes and only 38% of men share the same fear, which I think is dumb. I want to be empathetic. I really am, so I'm gonna try. But for too long, I've sat by and watched people hate on these creatures. They are amazing, but I get it. They're creepy, they're weird, they're little muscle noodles with lots of teeth, and some of them are very, very dangerous, which also I wanna say, there's no such thing as a poisonous snake. They are only venomous snakes. That's all I'm gonna say, okay. But they're so good for the planet, like snakes, eat all those nasty rodents and reptiles that you don't want in your house that cause diseases for you. So what you really want is snakes to help control and maintain healthy populations in the ecosystem. Also, for those of you who don't know me, I work at the zoo. <laughs> so <laughs> that might explain a little bit of what's happening here. Uh, so they don't want anything to do with you. More, more often than not, they want to stay away from you, and you should probably do the same and stay away from them and let them live their life. But I think I might have a clue as to why there's so much division on this topic and why humans might hate snakes so much. So for people in this day and age, the movie Snakes on a Plane has done nothing to help snakes. It's like so wrong. It's really frustrating. It's so dramatic. Like never is it going to happen that you can use, so this guy is trying to murder another guy on a plane if you haven't watched it, and he uses this pheromone and puts all these stupid snakes in a plane. It has a time release box, and then they all come out, and they all start like carnage everywhere. 
you cannot use pheromones to like make more than one species of animal react in the same way. So you, he makes them angry using this pheromone. That doesn't even work. It's not even how it works. And also snakes don't hunt in groups. They were like pack hunting these people on a plane. It doesn't work, except for pythons in caves. They hunt bats together. But that's the only time <laughs> that snakes hunt in groups. And snake bites rarely end in blood baths, except if it's hemotoxic venom. Then it, you kind of bleed a lot. But it's not like... Like, that's not how it works. So this movie is like the most dramatic thing I've ever seen in my life. But I know also for a fact that our Israelite friends did not watch Snakes on a Plane. So like, why is it that people still had this same idea about snakes, even if they hadn't seen the movie, you know? So let's start with those people who lived around the people of Israel. In the second millennium BC, they would associate snakes with death and with wisdom. In the epic of Gilgamesh, it's a Sumerian poem, Gilgamesh dives into the water to acquire the old man becomes young man plant. It's a weird translation. But that would ensure his immortality. But before Gilgamesh could get it, a snake sneaks up behind him and takes it and like smells it. He's like, old man becomes young man. Here I come. Takes the plant. And then Gilgamesh knows that the plant actually gave him mortality because the snake shed his skin. And he was like, oh yeah, he's immortal because he can shed his skin and be new again. So snakes, bad rap in Gilgamesh. And then there's this Akkadian story of a man named Adapa. He was looking for eternal life. You'll see some themes in these. He was looking for eternal life, and he meets a snake-shaped god who said, whose name translates to Lord Productive Tree. They really need to work on these names. But this god ruled the underworld and uh, was going to give him the bread of immortality. But this other god, I don't know what shape he was, but this other god tricked him into thinking that it was a garment that provided immortality. So Adapa goes, no, no, I don't want, I don't want your bread. I'm going to wait till you give me the cloak of immortality. And it was wrong. So he done got goofed. So snakes don't really have a great reputation in that story either. In Egypt, each night, the ship of the sun god would, like, move through the skies of the underworld. So, like, you know the sun rises in the day, and they're like, oh, it's the gun, you know, through the sky. And then it would move through the sky of the underworld every single night. And uh, there, in the underworld, there's this demon named Apophis, and Apophis takes the shape of a 45-foot serpent, which operates as an anti-god, or an enemy of order, essentially. So the Egyptian priest would perform this ritual to, like, repulse him like every single day. It had to do with like this box and saying his name a bunch of times and like burning stuff. So like it was really important and they would do it all the time. So and there was also this serpent named Wajet who served as the patron goddess of Lower Egypt. If you've ever seen like a pharaoh's thing, what's that called? Headdress? There's a serpent, a cobra on the front. That's Wajet. Wajet is really important and she's really incredibly wise and is capable of really intense magic. An Egyptian fertility goddess named Kuchu is often depicted as a naked lady holding snakes, sometimes flowers, but most of the time snakes. And this goddess is the one whose identity fused with the Canaanite fertility goddess named Asherah, who we heard about last week. So she had 70 sons and eventually is the one that ensnared Israel. So like that's pretty bad for a snake in the people of Israel. So what we've learned 
is that the people of the ancient Near East often worship serpents, and almost all of the time, serpents represent occult wisdom, they represent chaos, they represent fertility, and immortality. So this is the worldview of the people of Israel. This is what's happening around them. So we can kind of see why snakes would not be so awesome for the people of Israel. Uh, and I think that my mom grew up in the ancient Near East <laughs> because she cannot stand snakes, like at all. She's squeamish and snakes are kind of squeamish, so it's like a super, super bad combo. But she married a guy who also loves snakes, who thus had a child who also loves snakes, so it's like also a bad combo for her because snakes have always been a part of our family. And she like, I think I've shortened her lifespan because of this. <laughs> So my dad and I bonded over snakes, and when he was just married, actually for a long time, because snakes can live a long time, uh, he had a six-foot boa constrictor named Bo. <laughs> we really need to work on the names. Uh, it's not creative at all. But the only reason he got rid of it was because my parents got pregnant with my older sister. And having like an often, so they had a two-bedroom apartment, right? And like one of them was from my parents and the other one was the snakes. Like, big old setup, you know? And it would free roam, you know? Like it would be under the couch and uh, my mom would be like sitting there, you know? I heard, I was not here, but I heard the story, you know? And my dad would be like, you need to move. And she's like, I'm not moving. And he's like, there's a, there's a snake underneath the couch. And she's like, oh, I'm moving. And we get up. So having a free roaming snake and an infant, probably not a good combo. Because at this point in time, Bo was eating like full-grown rabbits, which is like roughly the same size as an infant. So, so uh, yeah, he had to get rid of it. But luckily, he bestowed upon me his love for snakes as well. So there's photos on your table. Those are me. My, I like to think I had a glow up. But the, the younger ones, I'm like 12 or 14, you know, and then those other ones, I am working my current job at the zoo, and my best friends are snakes. They're my coworkers. It's great. <clears throat> but my dad taught me how to have fun with snakes, but also how to have a healthy dose of respect for them. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's not a good day. <laughs> like, don't, don't do that. Don't touch snakes. But my neighbors, I lived out in the country, right? And my neighbors would be like, oh, there's a snake in my shed, Michaela. And so that is what's happening in both of those top two pictures is my, my neighbor, Jerry, was like, hey, I have a snake in my, in my garage. Can you get it out for me? And then I went over there and did it. There's another one where like the snake was shedding and the shed was caught and then it started bleeding on me. So I'm like got blood on myself and like a snake and my mom's like weeping in the background. <laughs> It's a good time. <laughs> so I caught this black rat snake as a child. They are super helpful to have around. They're so cool. They can climb vertical surfaces. I was talking about it at my table. I just love them so much. And I decided to keep it, and I named it George. So I put George in the basement in a tank. And one night, my mom got up and went downstairs. And George's lid was like, you know, popped a little bit. And uh, George was not there. <laughs> So my mom was like hysterical. I was sleeping. She got my dad. My dad went downstairs. They go into the unfinished laundry room and my mom's like weeping. Like, <gasps> like ugly crying. Cause she's like, we're never gonna find this snake. Cause there's boxes and like exposed studs, like a deep freeze back there. And my dad like just walks up and he like leans up against the wall. 
And my mom's like, what are you doing? We have to find this snake. It's like three in the morning. And he's like, I got it. And she's like, what do you mean you got it? And he grabbed the tail because if the snake was going behind the deep freeze, it's warm back there. So the snake was slithering by. And my mom was like, pull it out. I was like yelling at him. And he didn't because didn't, he was like, it's going to hurt it. You know what that would do to Michaela? And I was like, why'd you have to pull me into that one? Whatever. So they like move the deep freeze and unwrap him from like the cords and get him out, put him back in the tank. And then I wake up as if nothing ever happened, go downstairs and there's six eggs in the tank. George was a Georgette. Yeah, (laughs) eggs. But like black rat snakes snakes can um, lay up to 21. So we didn't know where the rest of them were. They were in our house somewhere. And what we think was Georgette was like going behind the deep freeze because it was warm and snakes needed like a semi-warm place to lay their eggs. And I never found them. And my mom was like so mad. Oh my gosh. We did find a baby black rock, black rock snake in our house after that. So I was like, one minute. <laughs> uh, but my mom was like, no more snakes. You cannot have snakes in the house anymore. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. So that last picture on there is a snapping turtle that I got next. (laughs) That's, guess what his name is? (laughs) George. (laughs) Yeah, I named him George. I'm telling you, naming is not a thing that humans are good at. So George, or colloquially named as Turdy, ended up living with us for like eight years. I had him. He was my next reptile of choice because my mom did let me have snakes. Uh, But occasionally my mom would bring up the most well-known snake in the Bible, the one in Genesis 3. So we're going to do like a really brief overview, sort of. Uh, In Genesis 3, in the fall, we find a snake, a serpent. And this is a mysterious creature that's crafty and clearly dangerous. The serpent is characterized as a beast of the field, but it's an exceptional one because it's crafty. And we learned about the word crafty last week. Uh, the Hebrew word is arum, and it's mentioned less than 10 times in scripture, nine of which are in the wisdom books, and the other one is in this, this verse with the snake. So in the wisdom books, arum is always used in a positive way. It's always used in a positive light. So for a human to be arum, it's a really good thing. In other words, they are calculated, they are wise, and that is always good. Uh, the wisdom literature is always talking about how the wise person is better than the naive one and such. And so the reason that this word is translated as crafty is because of the context. So the character here is going to make a decision that brings death upon other people with its arumness. So being a rum isn't bad. Being a snake is not bad. Being a rum does not make the snake bad in general but it just means the creature did something bad with its arumness, if that makes sense. So the other striking thing here is that the snake can talk. <laughs> like, that's not normal. Uh, it's really weird. But does anybody know the, except for Caleb, because I told you this one time, so you can't say anything. Does anybody know what the other talking animal in scripture is? There's two of them. Yeah, an ass. <laughs> it's Balaam's donkey. Yeah. Uh, that's in Numbers 22. So Balaam does some, some jerk moves, and the donkey's like, you know, and says some stuff. But both of these situations, Balaam's donkey and the serpent, these situations are associated with dark spiritual power. And that's important. 
So the character here, the serpent, has some like awareness of God's decisions, which is also kind of odd for a snake especially. Uh, But the snake tells the woman that she won't die if she eats the fruit. That's like kind of the whole gist of the situation. Actually, she would become like the Elohim or the spiritual beings if she ate it. It seems like the snake has insider knowledge, which is a little suspicious here. So one way to read this text is that the snake can be or could have been a member of the divine council, which is the group of things that God makes decisions with and is often talking to you people who are laughing because I mentioned the divine council. Rude. These are the people that Isaiah is talking to when he has the vision of the divine throne. Isaiah sees them. They're called seraphim. And the word seraph is the word for snake. So, like, these themes are connected, folks. Thank you. Yeah, learn. Haha. <laughs> anyway, they're called, this word seraph is the word for snake. It's also the word for fire and venomous snake because when a venomous snake beats, bites you, it feels like fire. So, it's a little confusing. That's one way of reading this passage. So as we learn, snakes are often depicted as uh, divine beings to a lot of the cultures around the people of Israel. So when people ask, is the snake Satan? The answer is like, yeah, no. You know, it's a little confusing. And this text is full of layers, a lot of layers with a lot of meanings. And if we aren't from the ancient Near East, we're not going to pick up on all of those, the first reading. So this snake is not a regular old reptile, obviously. This snake represents something sinister, some, some spiritual power that entices humans to give up their cooperative rule with God and take the opportunity with their new found knowledge to make decisions on their own. So instead of exercising authority over the beast, humans are enticed into self-destruction by the beast. The snake convinces them that they can do what they want, and then they end up ruining all sorts of things. So the beast is now ruling over humans. The snake is important because it outlines a theme between humans and animals, this relationship that always seems to be goofed from here on. So one of the broken relationships after the fall is humans and animals. So that's why it's so important that we're seeing a snake here. Uh, Genesis 3 uses this imagery to outline a relational break. So we share a day with animals. We were both created on day six, and humans were the only ones given designation by God as image bearers of God, and thus the vocation of ruling and stewarding over the land and over the animals. They are called to subdue the land by taking care of it. But Tension is created in this relationship, which, like, builds into hostility. So giving into the snake turns us into beasts. We lose our humanity and become like heirs of the snake instead of heirs of the sons of God. So the response of God is, I will put hostility between the snake and the woman and the snake's offering and the woman's offering. Offspring. Sorry. Uh, So here we get this future vision of a human who strikes at the serpent's head 
and the one who is in perpetual hostility with the people of the stank. So here is going to be a line of humans who preserve true humanness, who live into their image of God, and there will always be a line of people who act like animals. So how do humans become animals? How did we go from ruling and taking care of animals to simply acting like one? Great example in chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. So Cain is the firstborn son, and Abel is the secondborn son. And this is a direct mirror of the Genesis story, with animals being the firstborn and the humans being the secondborn. So we're already making some connections here of what might happen. So long story short, long story short, Cain is angry because God uh, regarded Abel's offering and not Cain's. So out of anger, Cain decides to kill his brother in the field. Cain gives into the animal that is sin. Cain gives into sin that is crouching at the door. So Cain becomes the poster boy for the seed of the serpent. He no longer represents the image of God because of what he has chosen to do with his aromness. Someone who gives into this beastly, subhuman temptation to act in subhuman ways instead of ruling over the beast, this beast of sin is what convinced Cain to overstep his bounds and take the life of his brother. He acted like an animal, and this is another case of an animal that lures the human and succeeds in the first act of violence in the Bible. So Cain becomes less human because he believes that he can only flourish at the cost of his own brother's life. And this is not the way God created things. God created the first and second born, the animals and the humans to cooperatively live together and for humans to take care of their brothers and sisters or to take care of the other sibling we share a day with, the animals. So there, this is a second instance which, in which humans step off the shared divine throne that God has asked us to rule from, and the world that we participate in is one that asserts a beastly-like human rule. So no longer is Cain living life the way God has intended. He's taking his own knowledge and deciding to rule the way he wants, which ends up causing pain and destruction, which is the opposite of Genesis 1. So look how far we've come, and we're only like three chapters into the Bible. We used to live in Eden, where we could eat fruits and vegetables, but when humans give into this animal-like sin, in Genesis 3, we're kicked out of Eden, and now we live like the animals, and our diet changed too. So we used to be able to eat fruits and vegetables, and then we were forced into the wilderness and had to work really hard for grass, really hard for thorns and thistles on the vine. So we are becoming more animal-like because we've been, the way we have chosen to act. So there's a pretty decent case for veganism here, um, but that's a story for another time. So no longer can we eat the good stuff, but now we have to go through this hard back-breaking labor to eat like the violent animals that we have acted like. So there's even more of a connection here between the Cain and Abel story and like branching into the Noah story based on like who Cain's family turns out to be, but that's like a really long rabbit hole. So we're gonna jump straight to Noah. 
So God is going to bring judgment on the world because humans are the worst. Uh, but he decides to spare Noah and his family. So he asked Noah to build an ark or a teva. And this word is described as a micro-Eden. So God is giving us an opportunity to restart Genesis 1 and do it all again and recreates for us a space in which humans and animals can live together in harmony. It's a little floating Eden on a chaos planet below. So Noah is literally restarting this creation narrative. And there's only three stories in all of scripture where humans and animals completely cooperate together and there's no hostility between them. The first one is in Genesis 1 in the Garden of Eden. The second one is Noah on the boat on the little uh, ark Eden. And the third one is the new creation in the New Testament. So everything from like Genesis 4-ish the early books of Genesis, all the way to the very end is hostility between us and our environment. So Noah's in the ark and gets to create this new, uh, this new creation. He has a new option. So they leave the ark and God says the same thing that God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But he adds some stuff this time. So God also says, now, the dread and fear or terror will be of you will be on the beast. Now every moving thing is for food, not just vegetables. So like this is a major difference between what God told Adam and Eve the first time. Now humans have the ability to kill anything to eat that moves along the ground, save for human. So God seems to be making a concession of sorts, a sign that humans have started down a path of no return. Basically, what God is saying is, maybe if I let you eat the flesh of animals and enact violence on them, you won't enact violence on your brothers and sisters. You won't enact violence on humans anymore. So God's saying, if I let you, it seems as though humans aren't giving up this beastly nature that they seem to have. They're evil all the time, but I'm not going to flood the earth again. But maybe if you can act that violence out on animals and eat animals, you won't enact violence on your neighbors. So new Adam, or Noah, gets off the boat and plants a garden and gets drunk. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the bad guy. He got drunk because I'm a Nazarene and that's what they say. But really, the big issue here is Ham, which again, with the naming things, who names their kid Ham? Probably somebody who has just got the opportunity to eat a pig for the first time, right? So Ham looks upon his father, and more than likely that means much more than looking at his dad. He takes advantage of his dad in an inebriated state and enacts an animal-like carnal sin in this moment. And right after this story, we see a whole lot of genealogy and we see one guy who's expanded upon. His name is Nimrod. I love the word Nimrod <laughs> so much. Bugs Bunny has ruined it for us because Bugs Bunny makes it sound like, like you're unwise or you're like stupid or something. But Nimrod just means hunter. Uh, and Elmer Fudd was a hunter. So Bugs Bunny calls Elmer Fudd Nimrod because that's what he does. He hunts things. Uh, but it turned into something much different in our culture. But what we know about Nimrod is that he is a violent man. He is a, a hunter and a warrior. So he's a slayer of beasts, and he's a slayer of humans too. He's the first slayer of animals other than a sacrifice. 
So he's not doing this in a priestly way. He's not doing this in worship. He's doing this because he can. He's murdering things because he can. He's acting like a beast. And the other thing we're told about Nimrod is that he built Babylon, and he built the Assyrian city of Nineveh. He is the archetype of a violent man who enacts violence and creates two empires that eventually take out Israel and Judah. So the fact that the son of a man who is acting like a beast creates these cities who then destroy the people of God is really important. Humans always seem to act like animals. So in these 10 or 11 chapters in Genesis, we see that humans are not fully human. They're not acting fully human. Humans are acting like beasts who unleash violence and death in the world. We are doing poor things with our aromness. We know that the one who will strike the head of the snake and the one who is fully human and fully divine is the only way to restore Eden. Spoiler, it's Jesus. Jesus can overcome the beast and can overcome humanity. And Jesus can reverse everything that's done between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis 10 and the rest of history since. It's not a coincidence that the only times humans are cooperatively living with animals is Adam, the new Adam, Noah, and Jesus. This should make sense to us. So I say that our perception of snakes has been shaped by this long history, oral tradition, and reality. It is true that snakes are very dangerous, especially if you don't have the means to treat or recover from snake bites. But I do want to clarify that animals are not inherently evil. In the post-fall world, the one that has sin in it, the one that still exists, Acting like an animal means that we're acting in a way that rejects our calling by God, the one that calls us to be an image bearer. So it's not that the animals are evil. It's that we have rejected our true calling of God to act as an image bearer in our world. So we acted in horrid ways, and we blamed the animal. We blamed the animal for our own demise. So we are the ones that really began to act like this and brought death and destruction upon our own selves, but snakes are a really great scapegoat. So what an opportunity we have to blame the snake at the very beginning for all of the destruction that's happened since. When in reality, it's ourselves that we should look on, not the snake itself. So time and time again, we let this beastly carnality of animalness take over. And the beauty of this story is, is that we now have the archetype, the son of man to look to. Jesus shows us how to rule the beastly temptations that we face. And Jesus shows us that through the grace of God, we can create micro-Edens, arcs of restoration in our communities. It will be my dying goal to redeem the name of snakes and work towards living a more redeemed life, one that can rule over the animal of sin and bring my neighbors a little closer to co-ruling on the throne of God. Let's pray together and move through the rest of our liturgy. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you for every neighbor in this room with us. I pray that you would help us to recognize the places in our life where we are doing something poor with our aromness, with this blessing of grace and wisdom that you have given us. 
show us the ways in which that we are using that in ways that hurt the people around us or hurt the environment around us. I pray that when we look at snakes, we would think a little bit differently. And I pray that we would take responsibility for the ways that we have acted in the world around us. And that through your grace, you would help us to create little spots of Eden, little spots of restoration in our neighborhood. And people would notice. It's in your name we pray. Amen.